0: So I went to my therapist to talk to him about my eye condition. My therapist was a graduate of Auschwitz, so he was an existential realist. And I told him the story, and he listened, and then said,
1: "Spalding, Spalding, please, please. All things are contingent, and there is also chaos. In other words, shit happens. Please give up this magical thinking business, huh? airy-fairy Disneyland Tinkerbell Angels in America nonsense. Please, do the right thing. Get the operation.
0: So he was no help. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Law.
1: And I am Cole Rolane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. I should probably also mention this time that there will be discussion of eye injuries and associated medical procedures, so if you're sensitive to that sort of thing, please proceed accordingly.
0: We are at episode 167, back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today?
1: We are talking about Grey's Anatomy from 1996, and that is directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it captures Spalding Gray's monologue about discovering he has a serious eye injury and the lengths that he goes to to treat or not treat it. Now, I don't know about you, but Spalding Grey will always hold a special place in my heart. There was a point in my life at which he supplanted Woody Allen as my New York neurotic intellectual artist of choice. Some of that has to do with his stories, but there's also a big part of that that is all about presentation, too, for me. This spare sort of theater that he does. Now, I know that these are very calculated affectations. The empty stage, except for the desk, chair, glass of water, and notebook... It's obviously meant to generate a very specific effect, and it's an effect that I understood as a reaction to what was going on in mainstream theater at the time, and I felt it pretty deeply. It's still theatrical, obviously. It's the pretense of stripping away all pretense, basically. Punk rock is punk rock, but it's also performance. And this straddled that line perfectly for me as someone who maybe didn't trust the theater at that point in my life 100%. I think, for instance, about the difference between the idea of this being an epic monologue and then the tradition of the one-man show, which, for me, conjures up images of Hal Holbrook doing a night as Mark Twain.
0: Quick question, though. Do you consider that to be a bad thing?
1: It depends on the show. Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain, not necessarily. But I do maybe have a slight bias against the idea of the one-man show, mainly being that thing that your landlord is doing if you're the Big Lebowski and you're stuck going to that. Good point. But did you have a gut reaction to this presentation style, being a theater person yourself?
0: Well, when you say that you had a bit of a mistrust for theater, I have trusted theater since before I even knew what theater was. So I'm all for it. However he wants to present this monologue, I'm into it. And I do have a small connection to monologists from my early university days. This was when I was in theater, and we would have regular in-house performances, and there was one guy who regularly did a different series of monologues. That's what he was known for. All written by him, and definitely not a one-man show. It was a story with a purpose, a beginning, middle, and an end. And I wasn't crazy about him as a person, but he could really tell a story and bring it home.
1: Well, interestingly, this starts with other people's stories. It doesn't actually begin with Spaulding Gray himself. It actually starts with some stock footage and then a series of interviews with people that have had medical mishaps with their eyes. And I like this thesis statement as it's laid out in the assemblage of this stock footage. It's all about the things that we know thanks to visual information. Watch now. Use your eyes, they say. This is obviously an indispensable idea when it comes to the way we interact with cinema.
0: Well, that opening clip from that short film, that really got to me. I started to try to listen to the words the narrator was saying and really think about how much I use my sight. I have a small connection to this. Once at the beach, I got something in my eye and I had to go to the emergency ophthalmologist and wear a patch for a few days. And it was the pits. And... I also get migraines, and I'm used to these headaches affecting my vision in very nauseating and painful ways. And I've had them since I was 10, so it's a lot of years with them.
1: Well, I'm glad you bring that up, because these stories that they tell, these interviews, they only underline what a fragile state this can be. And this element of the film, I discovered reading some letterbox reviews, is actually one of the reasons the film is a little divisive or off-putting. I was surprised, actually, by the number of people who simply can't deal with descriptions of these sorts of events and either immediately turned it off or had their experience so colored by that reaction that they couldn't engage with what came after. Now, you don't have that, do you? Did any of this make you feel squeamish?
0: Well, when that lathe accident story started, I wrote down right away, my stomach just flipped over. It is the nature of some of these stories, but... I don't find it divisive. It's the same reason that I watch cyst videos. (laughs) I can't look away.
1: Well, since you bring up the lathe guy, let's go through some of these and you give me your thoughts about them. It starts with him. He gets that sliver of metal in his eye, which just seems excruciating. Then there's the lady who sleeps with her eyes open and that dries them out and literally tears her eyeballs
0: I can't even imagine the condition that causes her to leave her eyes open all the time.
1: And she has to actually tape her eyes shut at one point to sleep. There's the guy who got a headache while he was at dinner with his wife that went to the hospital. And a doctor just passing by him in the hallway took him in immediately because he saw what was happening and barely headed off an aneurysm.
0: That's the story that affected me the most. That's what I worry about during migraines and probably other people with migraines can kind of relate to that because it's the most intense pain you can imagine without your head exploding. And I'm not using hyperbole here. If you've seen the film Pie, that is real. The feeling of wanting to drill a hole in your head.
1: Yeah, an hour later and he would have been dead. If he had just gone home like his wife suggested, it would have been all over.
0: So I, and probably people like me, are always walking that line of, is this quote unquote normal, or have I gone over into something more dangerous because of the pain?
1: Then there's the woman who accidentally put super glue in her eye, thinking it was eye drops. She waited it out and that sorted itself out. This is the one that I think gets me the most. The guy who was doing a brake job, who got a piece of wire stuck in his eye, tried to get it with pliers, drained all of his ocular fluid out, lost his sight, and then had to finish the break job to go to the doctor. There's the karate competitors that got jumped after he won a contest and essentially got his eye knocked out. There's a fish hook through the eye story. There's oven cleaner sprayed into a guy's eye, which he saved by cleaning it properly.
0: Which takes me back to science class. That's what they teach you, wash your eyes out. And it did make me think twice about how I clean the oven. But truly, I could listen to stories all day long about impossibly large pieces of metal being extracted from corneas, losing all your vitreous fluid, those fishing hooks you mentioned, straight out of a horror movie, by the way, and some random karate dude getting ambushed after a match.
1: That superglue thing, to me, that is a classic case of, I don't know how things work in your house, but that's goddamn ridiculous.
0: Yeah, you don't put the two bottles next to each other.
1: And yet it happens. A good friend of mine is a doctor, and I remember when she was going through residency, some of the ER stories that she told me, the things that people do accidentally, or even worse, on purpose, will never fail to befuddle me. Well, let's get to Spaulding's story. It starts with him at a workshop, and him locking eyes with a woman as part of a writing exercise. He notices a lot of odd sensations and a lack of focus, so he goes for an exam. And this part of it is a little similar to a situation that I found myself in recently, and we'll go into more detail about this later, in that the doctor emphasized the urgency of immediate care. He had a macular pucker, which would require scraping. Now, these are not the most soothing or reassuring terms.
0: I'm starting to feel these words in my teeth vibrating into my head.
1: Now Spaulding plays his reaction to this for a great deal of comedy, obviously, but he clearly found it frightening. There's really just an air of helplessness about it when it's your eye. Either this is going to work or it isn't. And some of our physical functions or senses feel more indispensable than others and can really rattle you at the prospect of losing them. Vision is obviously high on the list for us, as film is one of the biggest things in our lives, So would diminished sight in one of your eyes affect you, do you think, more than something like diminished strength in one of your hands?
0: You know, oddly, or maybe not oddly, I've had all of these thoughts. And especially when you talk about hands, when I was regularly doing massage, because there were times when my grip was starting to suffer and I started to think about all of the things I might not be able to do. Common things, helpful things, and it's really troubling. I don't know about you though, but I think hearing and sight to me are sort of side by side on that scale of what seems terrible to lose. I'm not sure how I would cope. I'm used to having compromised vision like I mentioned with the migraines and I associate that with great pain. It makes basic things impossible. I do also feel the same way about losing My ability to communicate verbally, that feels like helplessness. And I'm trying not to sound neurotic, but I do think about these things.
1: I don't think it's neurotic. I think people do think about these things from time to time for one reason or another. And everyone probably has their ranking of which they would prefer not to lose, worst to least, however you would like to think about it. But obviously, since I chose this, vision is clearly at the top of that list for me. Music is very important to me but it is less important than it used to be.
0: Oh, okay. I'm kind of surprised that you said that.
1: I'm only framing that in the sense of, I can still navigate with diminished hearing much easier than with diminished vision. But yeah, I would definitely prefer to not be without either. Now, as far as root causes for Spaulding's condition, at the time, he was reviewing material that he had written about his mother's suicide. And among his more empathic friends, I think, this raised the question What is it that you don't want to see? And it's not unreasonable, I think. Psychosomatic health issues can manifest themselves in very real ways. The power of the human mind in this realm is formidable. I lean into it in the opposite direction. I think I can defeat, and I think I have defeated, very real sickness just out of pure stubbornness, basically. But if you are prone to your mental health encroaching on your physical health, this does not seem outside the realm of possibility. And then if you're someone like Spalding gray who is well versed in the classics you also clearly have the obvious oedipal connection
0: that's the part where i have <laughs> trouble with this whole idea of the psychosomatic neuroses however i'm fully able to believe that his depression could rear up during a period of revisiting this very real major trauma I would say, though, I tend to believe the science behind the eyes issue, even if it's idiopathic, as is a major possibility, rather than being psychosomatic.
1: Well, as we portrayed in our opening scene, one of the very first things he does, he goes to talk to his therapist, who is an existential realist. I really like this guy. This is the part that I would likely play in this story. I would be no help at all. Now, assuming it's not just for the sake of the story, why do you think someone like Spalding Gray would choose someone with that particular outlook and philosophy as their sounding board?
0: I think it gives real insight, and I appreciate it, into that speculation versus research that he talks about. His wife provides the research. He provides the speculation. So I think he's looking for that person to work with, the yin to his yang. But of course, then, He manifests both at the same time, but less from a scientific angle. And I think, whether he knows it or not, but I would guess that he knows it, it's really the idea of not believing what you see or hear, or are told, or experience for yourself. I don't think you can make something like that up.
1: Well, speaking of hearing things and not believing them, he tells some hospital horror stories... And he also talks about growing up as a Christian scientist and how he is maybe falling back on that a little bit right now. He's also picked up by some Hasidic Jews who thought he was a Bowery bum, and he engages in a little occupational therapy with them. Along the way, there's a shaman he considers tantric angles. So he's moving across faiths. He's examining all these alternative methods. He calls a nutritional ophthalmologist. And I have to admit, Dr. Axe's office sounds pretty cool. He even visits a Filipino psychic surgeon. And psychic surgeons are super theatrical, so it fits this nicely. Now, I enjoy how they break this up here, too, going back to the interviewees. Would they do a sweat ceremony? Would they do an exclusively raw vegetable diet? How about psychic surgery? Did any of these alternatives sound interesting or compelling to you?
0: Okay, before I get into that, (sighs) I do get that the healthcare industry as we know it is largely terrible and demoralizing.
1: Are we talking strictly in the United States pretty much?
0: Yes. Okay. So I get why people want to go off on tangents away from quote unquote traditional medicine. But here's where I also want to talk about this idea of new ageism, which is not something that we have mentioned in the last couple of decades, but it's still around because I've been in the healthcare adjacent world for a while. And I have to take a break from it whenever I spend any length of time in that world. Because people don't want to do any work. They want to be told what to do, then they want to argue about what they've been told. And by the way, if you go into any of the goop crowd, they are still talking about heavy metals in the body, which comes up in this story.
1: So would you say as a massage therapist, you qualify as an existential realist?
0: I think so. Because this is where I'm different, I'm willing to put in the work, and if I'm not going to follow sound advice that is readily available and is based on research and trial, I prefer to try things that feel good. Meaning, if they don't make me feel worse, and they make me feel better, I don't think they're doing any harm. I do, though, and this is a newer thing for me, I try to stay away from things that don't make an appreciable difference. So I don't keep hydrogen peroxide around anymore and swipe it in my ears after I swim, just in case.
1: So in that whole hierarchy for you, where does the placebo effect fall when you're talking about things that just make you feel good?
0: I guess I just never even think about it because I feel like for those good things, those feel good things that I try, there is still some science behind it. For example, massage. You can measure your heart rate and see it dropping. You can see the effects of your circulation improving. You can feel less pain. Now, what about you? Would you try any of the things that they discussed?
1: I think I would try them all, but strictly out of just curiosity to see what the process was like.
0: Interesting. Do you think you would go into it with a skeptical mind?
1: Oh, without a doubt. I would do the sweat lodge thing because that's obviously in my Native American heritage.
0: But for real, not because a lady named Azaria was doing it in Minnesota.
1: (laughs) And the raw vegetable diet, that obviously has some benefits, I'm sure. The Filipino psychic surgeon, I would love to see just for the show business aspect. So I would check them out, but it would definitely be going in with a skeptic's eye.
0: I hope you include that link I sent you to the psychic surgery stuff because it's still happening right now. Oh,
1: yeah, that has never stopped. And I really do like that one the best, I think, because it takes in a couple of my favorite things. The history of con men and the history of magic. I think it's a little bit of both of those as well as fake medicine. Now, I found reading the reviews of this people mentioning it was divisive for two reasons. I already mentioned tolerance for grizzly eye stories also, apparently, your mileage will vary depending on your fondness for Spalding Gray. Spalding himself is a bit of a divisive character. He might be exhausting in real life to spend time with, which is where I think I feel like I might actually have a kinship with him a little bit.
0: Oh, you don't say.
1: <laughs> but in these concentrated bursts of storytelling, I like it fine. And as far as these criticisms that people are leveling at him, I think signing up to hear a guy tell a story for an hour and a half and then... Condemning that idea as self-indulgent is a little disingenuous. You know what you're in for. He's not going to talk about you for an hour and a half. Now, where do you feel like you fall on that spectrum of appreciation for him and his manner of storytelling?
0: Well, I personally love the observation that he makes about his own work as being petty analysis and ironic commentary. I laugh so hard at that. I can take an hour and a half of him on screen so easily, I've enjoyed everything I've seen of his. But I don't seek him out. I think it's a little bit of that same experience I was relating earlier about the monologist in school. I wasn't crazy about him as a person, but I loved the journey of the story. And I don't know about you, tell me if you feel the same way, I don't tend to think of my own random moments and memories as being particularly interesting or when woven together, somehow instructive. So I'm always surprised when someone else does that and can draw me in.
1: I don't know. I think maybe I have a little bit more of a storyteller's instinct or tendency to go that way than you.
0: I think you're probably right.
1: I'm just hoping one of these days you let me see what you've done for NaNoWriMo.
0: Never.
1: Well, speaking of the journey he's on, it starts with him being essentially the same age as I am now. And he introduces an interesting concept, that this age, these years from 50 to 53, are the Bermuda Triangle of Health.
0: I love that.
1: If you can safely navigate that time frame, then you have made it through the most treacherous time in your life. I always thought of mine as actually being at 48. I had a very strong premonition for a long time that I would not live past that age Now, I made it past that and now a couple of years beyond, but according to this theory, I still have three years to go or so before I am out of the woods.
0: Uh, scratch that, two years, because you're about to be 51. That's true.
1: And sadly, we know that it didn't exactly apply in his case either. He made it through those years, but then he committed suicide at age 62 after suffering a terrible car crash, which resulted in a severe leg injury and a fractured skull. For someone who was already predisposed to that sort of mental health struggle, I can only imagine how difficult that was.
0: I lost a very old friend who was roughly in this age to suicide a few weeks ago.
1: It hangs around, that feeling. With this premonition in mind that I mentioned, I still go back and forth now between feeling like every day going forward is either a gift or something that I have stolen that I will have to pay back.
0: I thought I was the one in this podcast who is supposed to do the suicide stories. Aren't I the horrible downer and you're the party animal?
1: I can't let you hog everything for yourself. So reasonably, he finally has the surgery. And the one thing that I really like about this coda, this ending, I like the inclusion of these health professionals at the end. It's a nice touch. It's a little grace note of science reasserting itself without sacrificing all the spectrum of humanity that he's talked about up until now.
0: Because I think they chose well. I also like that they seem to be Texans, at least from their accent. They're refreshingly straightforward, yet empathetic.
1: Well, let's talk here a little bit about Soderbergh's contribution before we get out of here. How do you feel about what he adds to the presentation? And do you think this is a good entry point for neophytes?
0: You know, I have to say, I hadn't really thought about his contributions at all before you asked, because I didn't really think of this as a Soderbergh film per se. Yeah, that's
1: funny. I actually do that with a lot of his work. I find that I'm often surprised when I see his name in the credits, because I don't think of him as having a specific authorial stamp the same way a lot of other directors do.
0: And I kept reading, and I was reminded that Swimming to Cambodia and Monster in a Box are both basically theatrical performances in front of an audience. So here instead, we are the theatrical audience, and he's addressing us through the camera. And there are tons of film elements. Maybe it's the interviewees and the doctors. They take the place of that audience that he would normally have, and they almost are like a Greek chorus. So I think he has to have an audience. This is what it's sort of suggesting to me. I would say, though, as an entry point, I think I still go back to Monster in a Box, but maybe that's because I'm a theater person, because it's all about that Our Town story for me. But I think this would be great if you wanted to get your mind off of your own health for a minute.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the contributions from other people, because I think that's one of the really smart things that Soderbergh does. How judicious he is with where and how long those instances take place, I think it breaks up the rhythm just right to where people who might find Spalding a little bit difficult to take get that experience broken up a little bit. They get to hear different voices, not just one all the time.
0: So I've got a bit of full disclosure here. When I was younger, I assumed he was basically George Plimpton. <laughs> so I never thought about him. I think I had more of a connection to Eric Boghossian, if we're looking at that time and place.
1: So you've got Spaulding Gray on one end, Boghossian on the other side. Two sweaty guys for two very different reasons. But back to what Soderbergh is doing here. The heightened dramatic tricks, I think they definitely amplify Spaulding Gray's tics for sure. And I go back and forth on some of these tricks. Some of it I enjoy and some of it I feel like is too busy. Like I said earlier, I specifically like the stripped down nature of Spalding's presentation. Too many bells and whistles detracts from that experience for me. And I'm glad you mentioned the others too, because I like the feeling of an audience a little better as well. This loses that a little compared to some of those other adaptations. I will say the one thing that really sticks out for me, I do particularly like the lighting effects when he is talking about the sweat lodge experience, though.
0: It really does bring it to life.
1: Yeah, it seems really well suited to add just the right dramatic boost to that part of the story.
0: So with the Bermuda Triangle of Health that you may or may not be entering, with these issues that you started to have, do you feel more empathy now towards people with chronic health problems?
1: Overall, yes, I think so. It has made me definitely more conscious of this idea that we never know what someone else might have going on.
0: I mean, because I just expressed my beef about people not doing what they're told earlier.
1: And if you just encountered me in the library, you wouldn't have any idea what is going on with my eyes, my feet, etc. So it's made me definitely more aware of that. What it hasn't changed, I think, is how much I still... Distrust the medical industry as a whole and specifically the way it's marketed to us that part hasn't changed whatsoever
0: So then why did you choose this Spalding Gray right now?
1: Okay, this is likely going to be the longest why I chose it section in the history of the show But first I'm going to start with reasons why I wouldn't have chosen it.
0: Ah, do tell
1: it really isn't my favorite of the Spalding Gray monologues, nor do I think, like I was asking you, that it is the best entry point. I think this one is better digested if you're already familiar with him and his style and you know what you're in for. And my recommendation in a little while, will speak to both of those things.
0: Huh, interesting, because I would say a counterpoint to that would be if you go in maybe as a complete neophyte with no expectations or hang-ups or baggage about who you think he's going to be, this might be a perfectly fine entry point.
1: Tell that to everybody on Letterboxd.
0: Okay, got it. Well, we'll see what people in the Facebook group think.
1: Now, the reason why I did choose it is that it has taken on an entirely new significance and relevance for me. As we sit here recording this, I literally just had eye surgery. So buckle in, because this is going to be kind of a long story. This has been A difficult year for me, shall we say, health-wise, and all of it first coming to light because of my eyes. Several months ago, I went to my optometrist because my prescription wasn't doing the job anymore and I needed new glasses. That doctor discovered that I had cataracts, which is uncommon for someone as relatively young as I am. So he referred me to an eye surgeon. That surgeon confirmed the cataract diagnosis and then further clarified for me that based on my age and the type of cataracts they are, that diabetes could be the culprit. He sent me for blood tests, and lo and behold, that's what it was. Not just diabetes, but type 2 diabetes on a massive scale.
0: Can I just jump in here (laughs) as your partner for a second? It was a scary day because the way that the information was imparted to you was of a dire nature of a, you must deal with this right this second.
1: Yeah, I'll outline a little more of this in case there are people out there listening that are in the same boat or have a similar experience, and then we can virtually commiserate here. When those blood tests came back, my A1C score was literally off the charts. And to simplify this a little, A1C, that is essentially a test that calculates your blood sugar level, among other things. Essentially, the percentage of your blood that is sugar. Those tests are only calibrated to go up to about 13.5% at the top end. They had to estimate that mine was around 16%. And like you say, it was alarming enough that when the eye surgeon got those results, he called me immediately and said I needed to see an endocrinologist right away, that I should be under urgent medical supervision. The phrase he used was ticking time bomb. He also stressed that he had a medical and legal, he wanted to say, Responsibility to advise me to take action.
0: And this also is not hyperbole. If you do any sort of research, you will see that stroke, heart attack can be of an imminent threat when it's at that level. So he's not making any of this up.
1: If this had been an earlier era, say 20 years ago, they would have just stuck me straight in the hospital, no questions asked. So like you mentioned, that was a long weekend of thinking I could have a stroke any second now until I could get in to see the doctor. It also doesn't help matters that I'm kind of stubborn about medical stuff. I think we as a culture, like I said...
0: I'm sorry, can (laughs) you hear my eyes rolling back here? I almost snorted (laughs) audibly.
1: I think we as a culture, just in general, are overly reliant on doctors and especially medicine.
0: I don't disagree with you.
1: I tend to think that because I use myself as my own precedent for that. I have had three separate doctors tell me in my life that what they were seeing me for at the time would have likely killed a normal human being, quote-unquote. So I have a lot of faith in the strength of my immune system. I've had some serious illnesses in my life, but I have been to the doctor more in the last three months than I've been in the previous 20 years combined. We've been together for almost a decade now. How many times have you seen me go to the doctor before this?
0: No, not even in the last couple of years, probably, or even in the last 20 years. This is probably more than you've been collectively in your 51 years, I would say.
1: You've even been pressed into service to do what I would classify as minor surgery on me. And I make the same offer now that I make to anyone, speaking of the medical industry. See a doctor, get an estimate, my Swiss Army knife and I will do it for half the price. But I do understand that there are some procedures I cannot perform myself and are necessary. And so this procedure I just had, cataract removal, is one of those that I would never ask you to do in our bathtub.
0: But if anybody needs an extra kidney, I'm standing by.
1: So I have been seeing the endocrinologist for a few months now. And of course, the very first thing that she wanted to do was insulin, insulin, insulin. I understand that impulse considering what they typically do and how severe my numbers were. But I told her that I wanted a chance to do it with diet and exercise changes first. And she was amenable to that. So in about 60 days now, I have brought that A1C number down from that 16 or so percent to 5.6%, which is just crossing the threshold back into normal non-diabetic numbers.
0: I want to say here that you're not eschewing the concept of medication for anybody else. Do what you think is absolutely best along with your healthcare professional. And you also, with diet and exercise, did not do anything crazy. There were no crash diets. You weren't wearing one of those weird sweatsuits and on the bike 24 hours a day. You did normal things based in science. Do I have that correct? I want to be a little bit more specific.
1: Definitely. And I'm glad you bring that up, too. I was going to say, give me a little more time and I will have essentially reversed that part of the condition. No medicine necessary. But I will reiterate what you say. This is not medical advice. I know myself and what I'm capable of. I would not recommend the same thing for everyone.
0: And not everybody would be capable or find that to be medically possible either. And I'm, but I am so glad that you have been able to do this. Again, without compromising your health by doing anything insane.
1: No, that's what I was doing in the run-up to all this. Because the signs were there for a while. And this is the part of the story that I think people may relate the most to.
0: I do because I was the one telling you that I thought that's what was happening.
1: I really do think that this was building for at least a couple of years now. I was feeling a lot of stress because of the political climate in the country in 2019 and 2020. Then obviously add the pandemic on top of that. I was either not working or working from home for a good part of that. So a lot of the things that might have been more noticeable if I was getting out and had a normal routine, those got a hold of me gradually. I put on a lot of weight. I went to the doctor, and he told me to open my mouth and say oink.
0: Uh, You never shared that with me. That's
1: a straight Norm MacDonald joke. Okay, thank God. I was really nervous there. Rest in peace, Norm. We just lost Norm MacDonald, and I don't want to get into that because I'm going to start to get upset. But that's a Norm MacDonald joke, straight up lifted. I love that joke so much. But the eyesight thing I didn't catch either because I wasn't driving as much, therefore not wearing my glasses as much. And by the end of that stretch, at least, I was also consuming gargantuan amounts of soda and being pretty sedentary, which I think is the combination that finally pushed me over into the most dangerous territory. Then there began a weight loss that wasn't reasonable, that didn't have an explanation, considering my caloric intake especially.
0: And this is also where I would say as a partner, I'm going to jump in because I didn't really notice that weight loss. It actually took my mom saying something about it.
1: Yeah, because it had been months in between when she had seen me, so it was very obvious to her. And in retrospect, I definitely feel a downturn in my general mental acuity and my memory. Blood makes all of those things work the right way, and if it's molasses, then it's just not going to happen like it should. And then the worst part for the last several months has been this peripheral neuropathy. That's the numbness and tingling in your extremities due to the associated nerve damage. My legs and feet are often extremely hot and painful, especially at night. Sometimes it feels like someone is sticking me with straight pins. A lot of the time it feels like frostbite. At its best, I think, I feel like a life-size game of operation. Like there is a mild electric current running through me all the time. Right now, if I'm awake, there is some pain. And this is kind of where it ties back to Spalding Gray, sadly. It makes for a lot of dark thoughts sometimes. The lack of sleep that results from all that alone makes me irrational, and there are times that I'm laying there at three o'clock in the morning where I'm thinking to myself, I just cannot hurt like this indefinitely, that I will reach a limit. But then the sun comes up and we get on about our business, but currently that's the hardest part. That, combined with thousands of dollars of medical bills now, zero out of ten would not recommend.
0: It's that long, dark tea time of the soul that I can relate to, again, going back to migraines. And that's sometimes why I ask you what time it is, how much time has passed, because I know generally how long a headache is going to last. So I know, am I at the midpoint where it's going to be the most depressing, where I think about ending my life the most, and then reminding myself, I've got two more hours to go and this will go away, for example. Not trying to conflate the two things sure, whatsoever. No, I understand what you're saying.
1: But the way this is extrapolated into our lives, this also might be where people have similar experiences, and I would love to hear about anything anyone wants to share. But how it applies specifically to film viewing and doing the podcast is that it has made things incredibly difficult for a long time now. Obviously, eyesight is central to the work we do for the show, and as it stood prior to this surgery... With the distance that the couch was from the television, I often couldn't even read subtitles or DVD menus.
0: And also just in the recording work that we do, I have heard you say so many times over the last many months, I can't read the screen. I can't see what I wrote.
1: We haven't been to the theater once or twice in the last two years, and that's mostly because of COVID, but also because I now cannot sit for more than about 20 minutes at a time comfortably. So new releases are something that I have to catch up on at home, I miss the theatrical experience so much, and then not being able to really see them makes it an extremely frustrating experience. The surgery will rectify that part, though, if all goes according to plan, which is the case so far. One eye down, one to go. So far, so good. And the process of this surgery is pretty fascinating. You're awake through the whole thing. They make an incision in your eyeball, and they go in and break up and flush out the lens you were born with, and then they replace it with a man-made lens. And the difference is just astounding.
0: I Kinda wish you had put the spoiler alert right again before you just said that part so I could have maybe left the room.
1: Well, you were with me through the great majority of the process, the pre-op, the recovery room. The only time you literally had to step outside was during the surgery itself. And how long were you out of the room for that?
0: Less than 15 minutes. I mean, it was so fast.
1: But the difference now is just unbelievable. Not just in clarity, but the colors, too. To put it in terms that a lot of our friends out there will understand, I feel like Dr. Patel did a 4K restoration on my eyeball, basically.
0: Wait a minute. Is it the criterion 4K? Because (laughs) are you seeing more teal and orange? I'm seeing more
1: everything, and I love it. Now I just have to find a way to reverse this neuropathy if possible. That's not been a lot of fun, but I am fixing these things. Maybe for that I just need to go to the Philippines for some psychic surgery.
0: It could be. I mean, also in the meantime, we have been trying some things as directed by medical professionals. I've been trying some specific massage with some specific elements that are supposed to open up your circulation a little bit better and try to put the damper on that pain cycle that it sends the messages that it sends to your nerves, which I realize as I'm saying it, it sounds made up, but it's actually not.
1: Well, how about you keep going in that capacity, my doctor, and recommend something for all of us to enjoy?
0: Well, I want to hearken back to something that you said earlier about these terrible hospital experiences, because I picked The Hospital from 1971, directed by Arthur Hiller, written by Patty Chayefsky, who also narrated it, and it stars George C. Scott, Diana Rigg, and Barnard Hughes.
1: This is one of my favorite films that you ever introduced me to. This is one of the greatest things you ever did for me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I like to imagine that Spaulding Gray saw this film at the time, along with Frederick Wiseman's Hospital from 1970, and these pictures formed his idea of why you should not go into a hospital. The film is what you might expect from Chayefsky. It's satire. It's accurate. It's insane at the same time. It's great. George C. Scott plays the chief of medicine at a big hospital whose life is collapsing around him, and so is the hospital. There are the deaths of two doctors and a nurse, missing patients, mixed-up surgeries, protests against the hospital, and a love story. And what did you choose?
1: My recommendation is Swimming to Cambodia from 1987, and that's directed by Jonathan Demme. And this is another document of one of Spalding Gray's monologues, in this case, about his travels in Southeast Asia when he was working on the film The Killing Fields and the search for that elusive perfect moment. This is both my favorite performance of his and the one that I think is the best entry point into his body of work. And here's where I disagree a little bit with what you were saying earlier about Nick Broomfield, Jonathan Demme not making as much of a difference possibly. Oh, okay. I think Jonathan Demme adds just the right amount of visual style without being overbearing or taking away from the basic setup, which I really responded to back in 1987. Now, obviously, Demi is great at documenting performances and adding his signature without getting in the way. Just look at Stop Making Sense. And Spaulding is at his best here, I think, and probably his most accessible.
0: So I'll definitely have to come back to all of those to examine the director's viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I'll do that anytime you want. It's smart. It's funny. It's a little sad the way that all of his stuff is now in retrospect with what we know. And I don't think that he's as alienating in swimming to Cambodia as much as he might be in Grey's Anatomy. That 1987 world, it really feels like a different time and place and it fits perfectly into that temporal slot. It captures the zeitgeist, so I don't know if it might be as impactful now for people going back to it. But this was the perfect place and time for me to start my journey with him. And hopefully other people will find it to be the same.
0: I think that's how I felt about talk radio as well. Speaking of Bogosian again. But regardless, once again, that's two great recommendations. The hospital and swimming to Cambodia.
1: I just realized how tired I am. This is kind of a shorter episode. I think it's going to turn out to be. So I apologize for that. But I just had surgery. and I'm a little worn out. But that does bring us to the end of episode 167. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level that gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We have also added a simple donation button to the website so if Patreon isn't your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit. You can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header, and that's in the main drop-down menu if you're on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. You can also find us on TikTok now by searching for our name. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Valerie Rude, Gary Gilliam, Jeff Duncanson, and Keith Rich. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks.
0: Hey, can we say congrats to Keith Rich too, the new daddy?
1: Absolutely. There's a little metalhead cinephile in training right there cute as a button congratulations to the new parents you can find our show on audible amazon music apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher radio spotify just about anywhere you get your podcast you can find us if you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services we would certainly appreciate that and finally you can find all of our episodes including supplemental material at the website magiclanternpodcast.com
0: and thank you for listening to the magic lantern podcast